Good morning. Welcome again to South Suburban Christian Church. If you're joining us on our online.church platform, if you're watching via YouTube or listening on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, thank you for being with us today as we conclude this season of Advent. This is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and we are just days away from celebrating the nativity of Jesus Christ, the birth of Jesus Christ, Christmas. And we're excited about it. I'm excited about it. I think I'm more excited than my own children are excited about it. But I love this time of year. I love living and being in Colorado where it's always a white Christmas. As a matter of fact, it's quite often a white Halloween in Colorado as well. And uh, I'm counting on the year when it'll be a white 4th of July. But that's another conversation entirely. But thanks for being here. I hope that you are ready to get into God's Word as we conclude this series, Mary Did You Know? We're going to be reading today uh, from Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46. Luke chapter 1, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is, those, uh, is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has sown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich, he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months and returned to her home. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. Amen. Well, in the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke, there are four real old-fashioned church hymns. Now, they have kind of august names, things like the Benedictus, the Nunc Dimittis, the Gloria, and, of course, what we read today, the Magnificat. You know, songs are really powerful in our lives. They, they bring back memories and, and, and experiences and feelings. They convey power and truth. And even today, I can remember as a young boy, my father walking through the house, singing at the top of his lungs, Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? It wasn't just that old hymn of the church that my father uh, taught me just by listening, but many others that even to this day still inform my sense of the holy, the joy of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. To this day, many of those great old hymns that all of us sing bring back wonderful memories. Now, I'm kind of excited to see how the generations that are following us as they are writing and singing their own hymns, hymns that have such power and meaning to them, how they might hand that tradition on 
to their grandchildren who will complain that they always sing the old hymns from the 90s and the early 2000s. They're not singing new hymns anymore. The same critique that often we hear today. Isn't it interesting how things never really change? You know, living in Appalachia for almost two decades, uh, you get to meet lots of folks connected with the country music industry. Uh, I could tell you stories about uh, being yelled at uh, uh, by the matriarch of the Judd family. Uh, uh, our experiences with Billy Ray Cyrus and his wife. And uh, it's just something that is in the air, I think, in Appalachia. If you're a country music fan, you probably know the name Travis Tritt. He made a name for himself back when he played Southern Rock and made the transition from Southern Rock to Bluegrass, uh, and then eventually to standard country music as a performer. Uh, years ago, Travis was being interviewed, and he revealed a little-known secret about his early years when he was just starting to break into the industry. He would, like many musicians, play some of these really out-of-the-way places, these, these joints, if you will, that were something uh, sometimes a little dangerous. Uh, one time as he was playing as a young performer, a bar brawl broke out, and Tritt tried something that worked so well it became his standard response when fights would start during his concert. Tritt said, and this is a quote, just when things started getting out of hand, when bikers were reaching for their pull cues and rednecks were heading for their gun rack, I started playing Silent Night. <laughs> it could be in the middle of July or any time throughout the year, he said. I didn't care. Tritt said he played, and at the moment that music would make its way through the bar, grown men would stop everything. They'd start to calm down. Tritt said sometimes they'd even start crying, standing there watching me sweat and play Christmas carols. You may have heard of another story of the power of Silent Night during World War I. On a crisp, clear evening over a hundred years ago, thousands of British, I'm sorry, uh, thousands of British, Belgian, and French forces were facing one another on that front line. And on Christmas Eve, they laid down their rifles, stepped out of the trenches, and spent Christmas mingling with their German enemies along the Western Front. And the hundred years since, that event has been seen as a kind of miracle, a rare moment of peace, just a few months into a war that would eventually claim over 15 million lives. Now, lots of romantic sources suggest that the song that uh, those soldiers played was Silent Night, but a New York Times article recorded a guy named Graham Williams of the 5th London Rifle Brigade, and this is how he described it. First, the Germans would sing one of their carols, and then we would sing one of ours, until we started singing, O Come All Ye Faithful. The Germans immediately joined in singing the same hymn in the Latin, Adeste Fidelis. And I thought, Graham said, this is really a most extraordinary thing. Two nations, both singing the same carol in the middle of a war. <laughs> well, we're looking at a hymn this morning as well. Uh, it doesn't really have a romantic history like O Come All Ye Faithful or Silent Night. As a matter of fact, this hymn recorded 
in Luke chapter 1, 46 and the verses that follow, actually has a pretty checkered history in the history of the church. The famous Methodist preacher E. Stanley Jones said that the song that you and I are looking at today in our Bibles is a, quote, most revolutionary document, the most revolutionary document in the world. Man, that, that's pretty bold words. William Temple, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury from 1942 until his death in 1944, instructed his missionaries who were serving in poverty-stricken India to never read this passage from Scripture because he was afraid that it would incite riots in the street when they would hear these words. What song am I talking about? You know, it's that old-fashioned hymn of the church. You already know, we read it earlier, the Magnificat. So named because in the Latin, the first word in that song is Magnificat, the prayer, the word that begins, my soul magnifies the Lord. You know, the irony of this hymn is, is that the title reflects on the action of Mary, it's her soul that magnifies the Lord, her spirit that rejoices in God, her Savior. It's a powerful statement. She gets it. Although it isn't strange in Jewish experience, that is, is that God is her Savior, that future generations will call her blessed, there are some rather, well, shall we say, revolutionary aspects to this hymn that she writes in the moment under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the good physician here, Luke, records for us today. You know, even though Mary sings this hymn, and even though this hymn begins with the actions that she talks about with regard to herself, if you begin to really get into the, the, the verses, the words of this hymn, it's not about Mary. It's about God. And the first thing that Mary declares in her hymn is, is that God sees look at verse 48 for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant i think that sometimes we read the bible and we interpret the bible through our own lenses uh, what i mean by this is that we assume that the person in the text that we're reading about will react or thinks or 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 considers uh, whatever situation they find themselves in the same way that we might react that somehow we are looking at mary how she is responding to this invitation uh, of carrying the messiah and we assume that she would respond the same way that we would respond we have probably heard our fair share of pastors who have said that mary must have been terrified mary must have been reluctant because that's how we would act if we were given that that charge by an angel that would appear. But the truth is, is as we have looked at from last week, as we have delved into the actual words that Mary uses, she's not terrified. Her response is one of absolute and pure joy. Mary is pumped that God has chosen her, to, has chosen to use her to bring into the world the Messiah. Now, some time has passed since 
Gabriel has mentioned this to Mary, has declared this to Mary, and Mary has made her way as far south as one could go into the hill country of Judea to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Now, the city that Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah, who is a priest, the city that they probably live in is the city of Hebron. Hebron has been for centuries a, an enclave, if you will, a community of priests about 25 miles south of Jerusalem. Um, Bethlehem also a little bit south of Jerusalem, but not as far as Hebron. And so Mary really travels from Nazareth further than she will travel in a couple of months with, her, uh, uh, with, with Joseph, her spouse husband, all the way to Hebron where she visits Elizabeth. When she enters the home of Elizabeth in chapter 1, verse 41, the baby that is in Elizabeth's womb leaps. Now, we've already talked about this with Zechariah when the angel Gabriel told Zechariah that his wife, who had been barren all of her life, will also give birth to a child, and his name shall be John, and he will prepare the way for the Messiah who is growing in the womb of Mary. You know what I love about that particular text here in Luke chapter 1 is, is that the first person who reacts to the announcement that Mary will bear the Messiah is a baby in his mother's womb. At that moment, the text says, Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, cries out with a loud voice, and in verse 42 says, Blessed art you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then in verse 45, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now let's put this into some context. It seems from Elizabeth's uh, words that she says to Mary that uh, Elizabeth's response is, is that it's pretty clear that Elizabeth is aware of the news of what has happened to Mary prior to her arrival. And Mary's response to what she hears from Elizabeth is she bursts into song. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, begins to write and pen this great hymn, this great gospel song found right there in your Bible, the Magnificat. Now thus far in our series, Mary Did You Know, we've really been spending some time looking at Mary. And I think that's okay, especially since many of us have never paid much attention to her to begin with. But now Mary and her song calls you and me to refocus a little. Not on her, but on God. And although this is often called Mary's song, it is really a song about God. A song that she, that is Mary, is inviting you and me to join in with and sing in harmony with her. To allow joy to overwhelm us as joy has overwhelmed her. To allow the presence of God to overshadow, to outweigh us just as the presence of the Lord has overshadowed her. You see, this is Mary's song, but Mary is asking us to look at God who saves us through Jesus Christ. And throughout this song, she calls upon scriptural allusions indicating that she knows her Bible. It's the first song that we see in, in, in the New Testament that is constructed in much the same way the Psalms are in the Old Testament, most of them written by David. 
We see in these words how she echoes the cry of Hannah from 1 Samuel chapter 2, chapter 2, who like Sarah and Elizabeth also had been barren, but to whom God had promised a child, a child that would continue the plan of God redeeming the world. You see, Mary here, she's a Bible girl. She knows her Bible. She reads her Bible. Her Bible informs her. And not, not only with her call to the world, but her relationship with God. Her praise is saturated here with Scripture. And this, like, like she reacted when Gabriel told her the news, she a second time in the verses of this hymn, she writes, refers to herself not only as a servant, but as a slave, a slave of God, that she willingly accepts this invitation, this declaration, that God is going to use her to birth Himself, the second person of the Godhead, into flesh, into the world, to save the world. You know, I think what I love about this as well is is that she, she, she not only declares the humility of her own life, she invites us into that same humble spirit, to have that same humble heart. And in verse 48, look there with me. For he has looked on her humble estate. It is God's looking that she wants us to look at. Forgive me for ending a sentence with a preposition there. The title of this song is Magnificat or Magnify. Mary wants us to put on our glasses to see what God is doing. Uh, you, know, you know, sometimes in, in order to really understand something, we have to. We have to spend some time and, and really focus on it. Several years ago, we bought our son a telescope. Uh, you may remember that on this past All Hallows' Eve, all, uh, Halloween, that the sky was exceptionally clear and the moon was exceptionally full that particular night. And so after all of the trick-or-treat and festivities were completed, my son and I pulled out that telescope and began to to, to focus it on the moon, and we could actually see the mountains and the craters of the moon. Before we knew it, the, the children in the neighborhood had lined up in our driveway, and they too wanted to look through that telescope so that they could see the details of the moon. And, and, and after a few more moments, parents of the children also began to line up because they wanted to see the details. They wanted to be able to, to look at the things uh, that otherwise they had never seen before. You know, it's interesting how we've seen things over and over and over again, and we become used to them so much so that we don't even pay attention to them. But when we're invited to look at them more closely, to look at them when they're magnified, and we begin to see the awesome details, suddenly everything begins to change in how we perceive the world around us. Whether it's the perception of the moon that hangs in the night sky, whether it's the understanding of how God is working in our lives. We are given a new perspective. And that's what we're being invited to do, to see God magnified in our midst so that we can see God in a perspective that changes our life. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes the easy thing to do when we find ourselves in difficult times is to say, God isn't looking. To give in to the temptation that the reason we're going through a difficult time is because God has abandoned us. 
And in the difficulty of Mary's life in this particular moment, and just because she's willingly receiving it doesn't minimize the difficulty, the the gossip that would have surrounded her in this event. She doesn't give in to those temptations. And she invites us not to give in to them as well. Mary encourages us to magnify, to look through the telescope, and to see the beauty, the work and ministry and life that God is calling us to. To invite us to see that God is active. That's the second point that I think this hymn points out to us, is that God is active. Mary continues her song in verses 50 and 51. Look there with me. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. As she began her song, she declared and rehearsed how God had worked in her life. And now she continues her song. She begins to see God's work not only in her life, but also now in a bigger context. How God works in the lives of all people. Because this is God's character. God is consistent. God is constant. You'll notice that we ended that scriptural reference there in verse 50, not with a period, but with a semicolon. Because she continues on in her thought. Look with me. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. Now, now what we need to see here is God's judgment, as well as God's grace. What we need to see here is, is that both of those themes are right here in this text. God's judgment and God's grace. Now listen, I know that these are difficult topics, especially in this season when we're expecting the messages that come from the church to be festive. And it may be difficult to hear this message, but it is in Scripture. It is the revolution that Mary declares in this hymn. That God is not indifferent to our rebellion. God is not indifferent to our sin. You could say that God is not indifferent to our own indifference. These right here are the lines that the good Archbishop of Canterbury worried about that his missionaries might declare to the poor, that they would hear these words and it would drive them to riots. Here, Mary calls on the powerful, the rulers who inhabit the thrones of this world, to remember that the reason they sit on those thrones is not for their own benefit, but for the benefit of the world to be of benefit for the people that they serve. That their call is to justice, that their call is to fairness, that their call is not to solidify their own power, not to give favors to their own families or their own campaign donors. That the rich are called to true outreach, not just charity. Not just a gift of coins or a jacket to the cold who are in the street but what mary's song is singing about is a god who is active a a god who calls us to invite the homeless into our homes a god who calls us to clothe the naked with our clothes 
a God who calls us to feed the hungry with our food. A God that calls us to sacrifice, even as Jesus sacrificed, as Mary sacrificed. A call, most importantly, to relationship, not to just charity. Josh Hearn is a friend of our families. My wife and I have known him and his wife for many years. He's a Baptist pastor, graduated from Duke and found himself serving a church in Danville, Virginia, a typical small town in a part of Virginia that has suffered the pain of economic downturn, losing industry, and now with a population for many who are struggling with addiction, crime, and hopelessness. He and his wife, Jessica, struggled as the church that they were serving became overwhelmed with this this ministry and charity to the poor. They were in a place where they just wondered if the work that they were doing was really making a difference. There in Danville, Virginia, the main street that runs through town, there's an Orthodox church, a Lutheran church, a Presbyterian church, an Episcopal church that's bookended on each side, one on the east side by a Baptist church and one on the west side by a Baptist church. And as those churches continue to exist in a downtown that now has empty storefronts, a place that was once bustling with business and people has become barren when the big mall was built just north of town and a downtown that eventually died when the Walmart came to town. Josh and Jess, very dear friends, knew that a new cross street needed to be developed there on Main Street, grace. And so was formed their new ministry, Main, Grace and Main. But Grace and Main isn't just a charitable organization that works with addicts and prostitutes, the homeless and the poor. Now this is what Je- Josh and Jess did. They sold everything. Everything they owned. And they and their family bought a home, a pretty big home actually, with lots of bedrooms, in the very worst part of town. And there, every night, they invite the homeless into their home. Friends and church members began to follow them, and these friends and fellow church members sold everything that they had and pulled their money together and purchased a warehouse that had sat empty for years. And there, addicts and the homeless come to spend the night with the very servants, the very believers who decided to make their home with the people that God had called them to serve. Not just charity, but outreach. Not just a a little something extra to help people in a moment of, of struggle, but a willingness to form relationships. Fulfilling, if you will, Mary's song, where the humble are exalted, where the hungry are filled with good things. And you know, it's also a place, frankly, where the rich are sent away. Because if you want to be a part of this movement at Grace in Maine, you'll have to sell everything. 
you can't just come for a weekend and work with them and then leave and go back to where you were feeling good about the charity that you've done. They're pretty tough. If you want to be with them, you've got to sell everything. You've got to use your resources to, to buy a place where that purchase will be used not just for your family, but for that community that you serve. Right there in the midst of the rough part of town, opening their doors every single night. And suddenly, as family after family have joined that, well, very eclectic group of Christians, they have soon realized that their best friends are no longer the accountant or the lawyer at the country club, but it's the dishonorably discharged golf war vet who still struggles with a needle in his arm. Or the daughter of a Richmond socialite who ran away from home and now makes ends meet by standing on the street corner that's just a block off of Maine. You see, that's why this song is so revolutionary. That's why this song was forbidden to be read to the actual poor in the streets of India. Because it speaks of judgment. But it also speaks of grace. That is, receiving that which we did not deserve. That is what salvation is, after all. The receiving of something we did not earn. It also speaks of mercy. As a matter of fact, Mary mentions it twice in verse 59 and verse 54. Mercy. That is, not receiving what we do deserve. My final point that I want to share with you today is, is that God has a word for you. In verse 55, as he spoke to our fathers, Mary says, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God has spoken. He's spoken through Abraham. He spoke through Moses. He spoke through David and Solomon. And he spoke through the prophets. And then all of a sudden, for 400 years, heaven fell silent. The last sentence that God spoke can be found in the very last phrase and the very last book of your Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. And here's what it says. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. For 400 years, we waited to hear God speak. Isn't it interesting that we never really miss something until it's gone? God had spoken to us over and over again through the matriarchs and the patriarchs, through the law of Moses, through the prophets themselves, declaring to us how and why God had created us. And when we refused to listen, when we grew used to the pleas of God to live into the fullness of what He had created us to be, God stopped speaking for 400 years. We felt alone, wondering if we'd ever hear the voice of God again, wondering if God was seeing, looking, if He knew who we were and where we were. And then, the 
very next time we hear God's voice, it's through his angel Gabriel as he visits this young woman and utters these words. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And God continues to speak to us today through his word. Not only through his written word, but through his living word. Jesus Christ himself. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. I pray that after this very difficult message of a revolutionary hymn, your hearts and your minds may be lifted with joy at the very stark and difficult charge and invitation we have been given, but also the invitation we've been given to receive His grace and His mercy. Look, I don't think I'll ever live with Josh and Jess at Grace in Maine, but I do admire how the Spirit works and the challenge of what it means to give my whole life to God and to His work to the world. To see that that is the fullness of salvation. Not only to be preserved, but to be used for His perfect will, for truth, and for peace. Would you accept that invitation? to give your life to Christ, to receive Him, to declare to the world that He is the Messiah, that you've accepted Him as Lord and Savior, Lord and Savior of your life. Would you click on the box if you're on our online.church platform to let us know that you have received Christ? If you're watching or listening on any of our other platforms, would you send us an email at office at southsuburban.com that we might walk with you as together we receive God's gift of true purpose and true meaning for our generation and the generations to come for His glory. Merciful God, in the joy of this season, may we see the true, profound, revolutionary moment of what you are doing as you burst forth into the world in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, to save, to deliver, and to call us to truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for watching this video. Please like this video and then subscribe to our channel.